Good morning. Let's turn in the Word of God to Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to begin our reading at verse 27. Philippians 1 and 27. Philippians 1, 27. And I remind you, this is the word of God, not the word of man. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. And therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Christianity is a belief system that, of course, is true. And being true, it is made for life in the real world. It is a belief that can stand up in the face of hardship and suffering. Because right from its outset, the gospel has been opposed in this world. Now, you wouldn't think that good news would be opposed. Good news, after all, sounds positive and favorable. And the news that we can have a home in glory with our Creator, and we can achieve the significance for which we were made to know God and to enjoy Him forever, as some Christians put it in the past, that you would think would be very attractive. Except the good news has the bad news with it, doesn't it? That we don't naturally attain unto this position of blessing of ourselves that we don't deserve a place in God's presence. In fact, what we deserve is exactly contrary. Thank you very much, brother. What we deserve is exactly contrary to blessing. We deserve judgment. As my friend Joe Reese has said in the past, if I got what I deserved, I'd be in hell right now. And I could say the same thing. But Christianity, of course, comes to us as grace because it comes to us in the person of a God of grace, a God who left that home in heaven to die on the cross for us. I'm going to speak about that more tonight. And in particular, I'm going to think about the block of Scripture that we find between Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. So if you want to read ahead for tonight, this afternoon, you can contemplate those verses. And it would be a very good thing to do. Wouldn't take you very long, but the concepts there are life-changing. That notwithstanding, Paul says to them here, I want to hear 
you believers in Philippi, that your conduct is that which is in keeping with the gospel, that it is befitting for those who've received the grace of God in Christ, that you've been saved and changed. And one of the hallmarks of people that are saved and changed is that they become part of the body of Christ. They become part of this mystical group of people that God began on the day of Pentecost in the first century, just a few months after the crucifixion, 50 days after the resurrection, exactly. And from that day of Pentecost on up to the present time, anyone who repents and puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation becomes part of that body of Christ. And therefore, when Christians meet together in local congregations, they are to be characterized by unity, what Ephesians 4 will call the unity of the Spirit. God's Holy Spirit himself forms this unity. Indeed, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross that one way that people would know we were Christians would be that our love for one another would show itself to the world. In fact, one of the early Christians in the first centuries after Christ said that the unbelievers reported of the believers, they said, behold how they love one another. Behold how they die for one another. Well, that ought to be our attitude. Now, we don't have much cause to lay down our physical life for one another in this country at this time. But we ought to be characterized by laying down our lives in service for one another day by day. If God doesn't demand your life, if you're a believer, at one particular moment of time, he does demand your life at every other moment of time. That is, you may be called on one day to give your life as a martyr to the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. But until then, every day is being a martyr because the word martyr is from the Greek word we transliterated into English. It means a witness, a testimony. Someone who speaks to what they've seen and heard and experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he wanted their lives to be demonstrative of the change that God had made in them by their unity. He wanted to hear, if he was absent, in verse 27, that they stood fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that terminology, striving together, speaks of work, doesn't it? It expresses effort. Christianity is not something that sort of comes to us just laconically or that we take in by osmosis. Back in school days, you know, we used to put our books by our bed and think hopefully some of the material will migrate through the ether and permeate the gray matter as we sleep and, and somehow will absorb organic chemistry that way or whatever the subject was. But it doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way in the gospel either. It is a warfare, a spiritual warfare. It is a combat. It is something that entails struggle and even suffering. As he says here in verse 28, that you're not in any way terrified by your adversaries. They could be afraid and step back and say, well, after all, if we're on the winning side, if we're really standing for the truth, why are so many against us? Why are we being persecuted? And you remember that even in planting this assembly in Philippi, that Paul and Silas 
had to experience firsthand suffering persecution that the church there might be established. You remember as they were going through Philippi, as recorded in Acts chapter 16, you can look there later for the details, there was a woman who was possessed by a demon and involved in fortune-telling. And when they finally got exasperated with her following them and saying, these men are servants of the Most High God and they proclaim Jesus to you and so forth, they finally turned around and commanded the demon to come out of her, which it did in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, do you know what the reaction in the local community was? When somebody got saved, did the local community say, oh, this is wonderful. You know, that poor woman, she's been possessed by an unclean spirit. She's lived a life that has been decadent because of the evil power that's been controlling her. And now she's been liberated and she's changed. Did they rejoice? No, the Bible says they didn't rejoice. You know what the local chamber of commerce did? They said, this is bad for business. We had an investment with that woman. We paid good money. I'm going to put it down here. And that way I don't have to fight gravity during the message. I'll take a a lesson out of Isaac Newton's book as well as John's Amazing Grace. But in any case, they said we had an investment in this woman. Uh, We were quite happy to have her enslaved to demons because she brought us much profit. Now it's a tragedy. But today there are a lot of people, people in our own land that make money off of other people being enslaved. The whole pornography industry is built around that model. And it's a very ancient model of spiritual slavery. And when people get saved out of that, don't expect the world to hurrah and to celebrate that. I had a friend who died fairly young of cancer. And before he was saved, he was a drug user and sometimes a drug dealer. And he said his mother, who was a devotee of a particular religion in Christendom, he said that she was always pleased to see him. It didn't matter what he was living like. She was always happy to see him. She'd give him money if he needed it. She'd give him a place to stay, whatever. He said, my real problems came when I got saved. Then she was very irate with me. Then she didn't want anything to do with me. That's a strange thing, isn't it? That a mother would prefer her son be a drug addict and live a dissipated life than to see him changed. But that's because it scared her, just like it scared the people in Mark chapter 5 when they saw the Gadarene demoniac liberated, and they saw him seated before he had been running around crying and screaming, and he was clothed before he had been naked, and he was in his right mind before he had been fierce, says the Bible in Matthew 8, 28. And yet now he was calm and changed. And what did the local people say when they came and saw him in such a way? They said, depart from us, Jesus. Get out of here. They didn't say, you know what? There's a lot of the rest of us that are really messed up too, Lord. It would be really great if you came to our community and changed our lives. They said, no. We're afraid of the kind of power that can change an addict's life. We can understand chaining up somebody who's out of control. We can understand locking away people. We can understand uh, anesthetizing them, putting them to sleep, rather than letting them uh, exhibit wild and crazy behavior. We know how to manage a person's bondage. 
But we don't understand such power that can free someone like that. And frankly, we're a little bit afraid of a God who would liberate from that power because any God that powerful who could change our lives, well, if he changed our lives, wouldn't he want to be the boss of our lives? And would he mess up our lives? Would he change us in such a way that we wouldn't like the end result? I think people fear that, you know. They think, well, my life's not very good, but after all, it's my life. (laughs) And I'm in control of it, so they think at least. I can just go on with my life. Sorry, I'm struggling here. Having war with my water bottle and my microphone this morning. I do apologize for that. Thank you, brother. So glad Brother Shapiro's on hand to keep me straight. But people say, you know, if, if the Lord got a hold of my life, wouldn't he mess things up? Well, there's a program, I've never seen it, but it's called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. And I read in the newspaper that they came to our town a few years ago, and there was a widow, and they had pity on this woman, and they decided to redo her home. Now, from what I understand of these type of programs, they come in and they redo your home in such a way that the end product is fantastic. So you may have had, you know, the grubby old bathroom before. Now you've got, well, you know, the beautiful uh, porcelain commode and you've got the lovely uh, two sinks there that your wife and you can brush your teeth simultaneously at. And you've got the marvelous walk-in shower and you've got the jacuzzi. And then in the living room, they've put up the big screen TV where you can uh, watch the Oakland Raider games. You know, yesterday it was Southern California team, so I've got to be equal opportunity here. And uh, you can go on and you can just enjoy the beautiful marble countertops in the kitchen and the cherry oak cabinetry and so forth. And the end product, the person never says, hey, I'd like my dirty old grubby house back. You know, I liked it better when the ceiling was falling down. Now they come in and they're like, you know, ah." (laughs) at least that's what it looks like on the commercials, you know, and any show with that much crying, I don't want to see it. I've I see, you know, with three children under the age of eight, I see enough crying in my day. I don't need to watch it on television. But if that's what human beings can do to someone's home, that they can come in and the professionals, so to speak, can know enough to remake your home in such a way that the end product is something you're going to be delighted in, don't you think that the God who made you can remake you, can recreate you in such a way that the end product is going to be absolutely beautiful and desirable. No one who ever came to the Lord Jesus and submitted to him and said, my Lord and my God, save me a sinner, has ever had cause to regret that decision. He does a wonderful product in the end. Sorry. By tonight, we might have to duct tape this to my ear. Now, the fact that people were being adversarial, it was evidence, says verse 28, that they were on their way to perdition. It was proof of perdition. These are people characterized by lostness. People, in other words, that don't know God. And I mentioned this to the young people last night in talking about these verses, that often persecution of true believers has come from people that are religious. That's sort of counterintuitive. 
We would think people that believe in God would be the most appreciative of a life changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, when your religion is based on human effort, is based on what you can do to get to God, it's an affront to you. I'll pause a moment for the recording's sake. (laughs) Thanks, brother. I'm sorry to be... (laughs) There we go. It's an affront to any religion where people are trying to add their bit to God. If you come and tell someone salvation is the free gift of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not of our efforts. In fact, we have to turn from ourselves and turn to rely solely on God, agreeing with God about ourselves that we're absolutely and completely lost and helpless to save ourselves. That is a message that religion doesn't want to hear because any religion, and fill in the blank, any religion but the biblical gospel will tell you what you can do to get to God or to get to moksha or to get to nirvana or to get to paradise. Wherever they're trying to get to, they'll tell you what prayers, what ceremonies, what things you have to go through, what places of worship you must attend, and so forth and so on. It is only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that says God has come to us. God has come down and the Lord Jesus has laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. The Lord Jesus has died as our substitute. He took our place. As the old chorus says, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. That's what the gospel says and religious people are often put out by it and sometimes will persecute true believers by it even to this day. He says, that just proves their lostness. But to you, verse 29, it has been granted. Now notice that terminology. If I said, you know what? I'm going to grant you the privilege of owning a Ferrari Testarossa. You would say, well, that's nice. Or to you, it's been given the privilege of dining with the president of the United States. Now, I don't care what your politics are. It would be pretty cool to get to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and I always had to work Pennsylvania into the message somewhere. Uh, but it would be nice to dine at the White House once in your life, wouldn't it? And to sit there with all the, the nabobs and luminaries, all the power people, and say, my, isn't this lovely? Well, I don't know. I think it would be nice anyway. But he says, to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, as if... That's a privilege, as if that's something good and desirable. Now, that is counterintuitive. We look at suffering, and we are hardwired to avoid suffering. Naturally speaking, we are all like current. Human beings like to take the path of least resistance. We don't like it hard, and we don't enjoy pain. Well, God made us to be that way, not to like pain, okay? So that's natural. And Paul isn't being masochistic, much less sadistic here. He isn't one saying, I enjoy pain, or I want to inflict needless pain on you. But he is one who's saying that suffering has a higher purpose than is often thought of in the world. Now, skeptics often come to believers, and they say, you know, what I really have trouble believing is why, if there's a God, is there so much evil in the world? 
And I think that's a very strong argument. I want to say it's a tremendous argument to me for the truth of God and his word. Because if you look at any other belief system, then you have no explanation and certainly no hope in the face of suffering. If there is no God, for example, and we are all here as a product of evolution, capital E, that's usually the way the naturalists speak of it, because inherently we know there is a higher power. We know there is a God. We have eternity in our hearts, as Ecclesiastes says. And so it's very hard, really, to try and be consistent and talk about existence without a God. So scientists and naturalists end up deifying the forces of nature. So now it's time plus matter plus chance, given, you know, just uh, any number of eons that you can stack upon one another, that produces us by accident. Well, guess what? If that's the explanation for the world, then suffering and evil, they're just a product of the universe. They're just part of our existence. And we can't do anything about it. And there's no overarching meaning to suffering. You suffer? Oh, well, that's, that's sad. I'm sorry for you. But there's no hope in it, you know. There's no point in it. You can be the most spectacular mind in the universe and a little microbe will enter your body and can absolutely destroy your nervous system and render you a blithering idiot. Consider the father of of nihilism, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was professor of philology in Switzerland when he was 24 years old. An off-the-charts smart kind of a guy knew multiple languages, wrote all kinds of books, deep philosophy that you have to read over and over again. The sad thing is, when you really understand what he's saying, it's a lie. Because he's saying, there's no room for God in our universe. We've outgrown that notion of God. Now we need to be our own saviors. We need to be, have the ubermensch, the overman or the superman, who's going to come and deliver us. Well, guess what? Mussolini and Hitler, they thought that was marvelous stuff. They said, hey, I'll apply for that job. I'll be the savior of mankind. And what did those guys bring in? Utopia? Far from it. A war that killed between 55 and 80 million people globally, depending on whose statistics you read. A bloodbath. No, no. If you are a Hindu, how do you explain suffering in the world? Well, they say to exist is to suffer. That's why we're trying to have the transmigration of the soul and move up through the chairs that hopefully eventually will be absorbed into moksha, into nothingness. And we can get out of this life where there's suffering. There's no point in suffering. The idea is to escape suffering by pretending it's not real. It's just maya. It's illusion. It's illusory. And in fact, in Hinduism, evil is a product of many of their gods. So many of the gods they worship, they worship to try and buy the god off so he won't do something nasty to them. Or if you look at the god of Islam, you know, their phrase might be pronouncing it wrong, but I think it's imshallah, the will of Allah. And so we don't have any control over it. Allah has predetermined everything and you just have to accept your lot. And there's no necessary overarching meaning and purpose other than the fact that Allah is supreme and you must Submit to him. No point in suffering. But biblical Christianity is different. Because biblical Christianity tells us that evil is present in the world because of sin. And sin is rebellion against God. God didn't invent rebellion against himself. God didn't invent sin. 
that was a product of his creatures. First of all, of Lucifer and the angels that rebelled, who became demons and infernal beings that are working against God. And then man, as Romans 5.12 reminds us, that by one man sin entered the world and death through sin. We have to believe in the historicity of Adam, that Adam was a real historical being, because that explains evil and suffering. And that explains our gospel, in fact. So sin and evil are in the universe. Now, what's going to triumph? Is evil going to triumph? No, it's not going to triumph at all. In fact, God uses suffering to accomplish his purposes. Now you say that sounds kind of wrong. I mean, how is it that suffering can be a good thing? Well, when I was a kid, I have cerebral palsy. If you thought I was limping for effect or for sympathy, I'm not. It's a a congenital condition I've had, brain damage to my cerebellum, the part of my brain that controls motor function. So I spent a a number of months of my life as a child in the hospital recovering from surgeries. And when I was lying in bed one time in severe pain, the doctor, who was a world-class surgeon and did uh, great things for my body in the long run, I said, doctor, why does it have to hurt so much? And he said to me, no pain, no gain. Now, if you're in the medical field, please bear in mind that that's not good bedside manner. (laughs) That is not something good to say to a patient when they're in the throes of suffering, nor will it endear you to their parents. My father, who was a big construction worker type of guy, wanted to show the doctor a little bit about pain after that. But thankfully, my mother was able to calm him down a bit. But you know what? He was right. Here they went into my body and they cut me. Now, is it a nice thing to cut a person? If someone took out a knife and slashed you in the campground, what would you do? You'd make a beeline for one of those law enforcement rangers, wouldn't you? Or you'd look for Brother Kevin or you'd look for Brother Davey, one of the law enforcement professionals we have here, and you'd say, arrest that man. He cut me. But nobody arrested my surgeon. Why? Well, he put an incision in me, a very specific cut at a very specific place so he could go in and he could put a very small cut in my tendon. Now, you know what that did for me? My body being invaded like that reacted with tremendous muscle spasms. Picture every muscle in your leg cramping up simultaneously and doing that in 15-second increments. And you can understand some of the experience of what it was like to recover from those surgeries. It wasn't fun. But it got worse. Because then they introduced me to people that I used to call physical terrorists. I mean physical therapists. (laughs) And those people, they just had no mercy. Though I'd scream and holler and cry, they would stretch me and stretch me and stretch me some more. Why did they inflict all that pain upon me? Well, so that when I was 15 years old, I wouldn't be in a wheelchair. Because they said without those surgeries and without that therapy, that's what would happen to me. I'd be in a wheelchair. So that here I am, 41 years old, and still able to walk. So we recognize that even in our understanding of the body, even in our understanding of medicine, we will allow things that hurt to happen to us for the long-range goal of something better to happen. Now, why does God allow suffering then? 
Well, there are many answers to that question in the Bible. The Bible takes up that issue in multiple books and looks at it from different angles. On the one hand, God wants to show and prove the reality of faith in himself. That God isn't just coddling us and protecting us from all the hardships and the difficulties of life in an evil world and keeping us from suffering so that he buys our service in that manner. That was the fallacy of Satan's accusation against Job, wasn't it? Well, God, of course Job fears you. I mean, you've made his stocks go up. He's got all the blue chip ones. And, you know, there's no bubbles in his investments. They just keep going up and up and up. The S&P is always up for Job. And his health, look at his health. I mean, that guy, you know, he's like uh, Michael Phelps and uh, Bruce Jenner and who knows who else all rolled into one. I mean, he's just the paragon of health, isn't he? You take away his stuff, you take away his family, you take away his health, and he'll curse you. That's not what the real faith that God gives to us accomplishes. The real salvation, the real life that a believer has can go through the trials, can go through the waters, can go through the fires and be preserved. Not because of us ourselves. Because you notice here that when he speaks to them about suffering, and he is not aloof from it, he's experienced it and was even experiencing it at this writing, as verse 30 denotes. But then he immediately begins to talk in verse 1 about the consolation in Christ. Now, when he uses the word if there, it's not the question of it's doubtful. It's not saying there may or may not be. The Greek scholars tell us we could really translate it there, since, since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, and since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since affection and mercy. In other words, in the suffering, we have resources. We have a God that we can draw upon in the suffering. Now consider Paul's experience. Turn with me for a moment over to 2 Corinthians 11. And we're almost out of time, so we're going to do this very, very quickly. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is having to sarcastically contrast himself to false teachers that were coming among the Corinthians. And he says, basically, can these guys put forth how much they've suffered for the gospel and for the Lord like I have? Here's what I did, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Because Talmudic law said, you know, the Talmud wasn't in existence yet, but the tradition that later got written down in the Talmud said, if you beat them more than 40 times, that would be unmerciful. You might shame them irrevocably. So it'll be a mercy to keep it to 39 stripes. So when that happened, he said, I endured that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That was at Lystra. You can read about in Acts 14. Three times I was shipwrecked. We read about one of those at the end of the book of Acts. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things. Ooh, I thought that was a pretty comprehensive list, but he says besides the other things. What comes upon me daily, my deep concern 
for all of the churches, or as the King James puts it, my care for all of the churches. Now look back a moment at 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. And verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction... Uh, uh, well, wait a minute, hold on. Paul, you've been whipped three times with 39 stripes. You've been beaten five times with rods. You've been shipwrecked. You've been in all kinds of dangers and troubles. And you call that light affliction? How so, Paul? Well, he wasn't an idiot. It was comparative. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. We find it very easy to forget that as human beings. We think seeing is believing. We think the real world is this one around us. Well, guess what? This world is real, it's true. But there's one that's going to last forever that's coming after this one. This one's temporary. It's transient. As the Lord Jesus said, it's passing away. And what is God working for the believer? He's actually going to use affliction, suffering, to accomplish his eternal purposes, to work a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. That we suffer in the short run, that in the long run, we might be presented conformed to the image of Christ and be co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is that fair? I would say it's an absolutely wonderful, wise thing to do. And the wonderful thing is, as I say, that when we suffer, and there are many here, doubtless, who have suffered like things that I couldn't imagine, and none of us could go through suffering and stand the trial in and of ourselves. We can only have this kind of benefit if we're depending on the Lord in the trial. That consolation, that comfort of love that Philippians 2 speaks about. We have the Lord going with us through the trial. When you go through the waters and when you go through the fires, not just go into them, but go through them. You're passing through on the other side. I will be with you, says the Lord. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, he says in Hebrews 13. And the Lord is with us. And what's more, the Lord knows what he's about because he himself has entered into suffering. He himself suffered unlike anyone else has suffered. And what did he accomplish through his suffering? He's bringing many sons to glory. He's bringing people that otherwise had no hope of glory to heaven for all eternity. Does the Lord consider that a worthwhile thing to do? To suffer that he might save us for eternity? He absolutely considers it worthwhile. And we're going to spend eternity unraveling the blessing upon blessing upon blessing and the glory upon glory upon glory that Christ has accomplished through suffering. Praise be his name. Father, we're thankful this morning for thy people here. And many of these are probably going through trials as we speak. Father, we realize this is truth easier preached than lived. But we pray that today they might realize afresh that they have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That they have a Savior who doesn't just save after we die. He saves us every moment. We are being saved. 
He is the stay and help of our life. He's the one who's risen and triumphed over sin and death and hell. And the one who says, because I live, you shall live also. We're thankful for him. We pray they might draw on him for strength. We pray that each of us, when affliction comes, would run to our Father and say, Abba, Father, protect me, shelter me. Give me wisdom to stand the trial and to bring thee glory. To let thy work of sanctification take place and knock off the rough edges of my life that I might be presented as a masterpiece. That the divine sculptor might conform me to the image of Christ. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' holy name. Amen.